everybody. Welcome to the Good Evening Kitties podcast, a Tales from the Crypt review. My name is Melissa, your ghostess with the mostest, and today's episode is season seven, episode five, Horror in the Night. Today I have with me a special guest host, Antonio, from the Cult Worthy podcast and the little side podcast off of that spinoff, uh, the Cult Worthy classic podcast. Hi, Antonio. Hey, Melissa. It's fun to be on your show this time. Yeah, I've been on yours like three times now. So yeah, I thought it'd be fun to have you on. This one's a pretty like visually neat effects in this episode. So I thought it'd be fun to have someone to talk to about it since this is an audio podcast. Uh, So yeah, uh, how are you doing? I'm great. And yeah, I really enjoyed this one. And I can't wait to talk about it because after I watched it, I like went in cold. I didn't do any research on it until after. And then once I started doing the research, I'm like, okay, now I get why I like this episode so much. So super excited to talk about it. I'm doing great. Uh, we just released the episode that you and I did together of the Cultworthy Classic uh, just last Monday, and it's doing great. A lot of great feedback, and a lot of people revisiting Django again, either for the first time or after many, many years. So mission accomplished. We got people watching these movies again. So thank you for that. <laughs> good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I, I listened to it and stuff. I think it turned out pretty good. So yeah, if you haven't checked out the Cultworthy Classic Podcast, I've been on it three times, like I said, and you've done what? That's 25 episodes. You've done, uh, well, 24 in a clip show. Yeah. So ours are about the sadist, Peeping Tom and Django from 1966. So yeah, go check those out or just check out the podcast in general. And yeah, thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm interested to find out what other research you've found with this episode. Well, I mean, uh, it's vague, I, but like the director and like some of the the stars of it, um, the director was the biggest one. Like the okay. like you said, the stylistic approach to this seemed very familiar and I couldn't put my finger on it. And then once I looked it up, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly who it is. So, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah. So I'll ask you that in a, in a bit here. Yeah. So. Antonio, what is your history with Tales from the Crypt? Did you watch it growing up? Yes, or? I definitely watched it growing up, but it was mostly the earlier episodes, the earlier seasons, probably like season one through five, maybe parts of six. The last mm-hmm. episode that I remember seeing on release, like waiting for that episode to come out, was I think the You Murderer episode where they had the face swap of Humphrey Bogart, that really kind of early yes. face swap technology, which wasn't super convincing then and it's not super convincing now but i like that it was like first person pov of the narrator of like the main character of that episode that's why i liked it that's like the last episode i remember seeing in its original run yeah, that's the very end of season six yeah so season seven i've seen none of them so this was brand new for me this season i don't quite remember as much because yeah i tend to watch the first six seasons so yeah so did have you ever watched any of the movies like there's 1972's tales from the crypt there's Fault of Horror, there's Demon Knight, Bordello Blood, there's The Unfortunate Ritual from 2002. Yeah, I didn't see that last one. I've seen all the others. Um, Demon Knight, probably the one on repeat the most. That's my favorite of them all because it's just got a great cast. What with Billy Zane and Jada Pinkett and CCH Pounder, yeah. like great, great cast of characters. That's one always, always like, and just turn that one on anytime. The other ones, like the old English ones, the British ones from the 70s, I remember just watching them maybe once or twice through. They have a very different vibe. They're more they're more relaxed. They're more kind of like Hammer-style gothic horror than they are tongue-in-cheek like the series is, which is cool. Well, they're more anthology. Yeah, they're like definitely those first more two, anthology. It's like a collection of people getting together to tell stories. Um, so once I get to Demon Knight, they're just like creatures. <laughs> yeah, know? and, the, and, uh, and uh, what most people know 
as the crypt keeper, not the original old English dude. <laughs> yeah, some old dude in a in a crypt being like, "Hey, what's up?" In yeah. a robe. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of my um, that's that's my history with Tales from the Crypt and the movies for sure. But I mean, once you and I started doing these episodes together, and you told me that they were on YouTube, I have gone back and revisited a few. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like the the one that we talked about in one episode uh, with Christopher Reeve and Judd Nelson, uh, where they had the roadside diner, and he's What's like, cooking? What's cooking? That's still one of my favorite ones. Then there was the one where uh, Travis Tritt is like the mor- morgue guy, and the dude's trying to steal his soul gland. I think that's Doctor of Horror, Doctor? Yeah, something like that. And at the end, he's like, yeah, one of those you took my soul, and I want it back, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, so I went back and rewatched a few that I remember enjoying from my childhood. There's still some really good ones. And so far in season seven, there's still, there's been a couple that I've enjoyed. So like I said, season seven, episode five, Horror in the Night. As always, John Kassir does the voice of the Crypt Keeper and Danny Elfman does the theme song. This episode aired May 24th, 1996. It was directed by Russell McCulley. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce that. But I mostly have him down as directing other Tales from the Crypt episodes. He also directed Let the Punishment Fit the Crime, People Who Live in Brass Hearses, and Split Second. What else do you know about him? So he is one of my favorite like underrated directors uh, from Down Under. He was Australian. I should say is Australian. He's still with us. <laughs> <laughs> he grew out of it. <laughs> he grew out of it. Um, he was a music video director of like the late 70s, early 80s. So he had a very stylistic flair, which he brought to his filmmaking. And one of the things that I find fascinating about him is as visualistic and stylish as he is as a, as a filmmaker and as especially a mu- music video director, his longevity has been kind of like up and down between films and TV, mostly because the films he made never really made a lot of money at the box office and garnished cult followings, which, you know me, I love cult followings, but sometimes they don't pay the bills. So to kind of like (laughs) give you a backstory of what he's done, the film that I most know him by and most people would know him by is The Highlander, back from the early 1980s with uh, Christopher Lambert and Clancy Brown and Sean Connery. You know, there can be only one the immor- immortal with the sword, you know, trying to cut off all the other heads of the other Highlanders so he can get the prize, which is mortality. Yeah, one of my favorite 80s films, definitely cult film. But he also did a lot of horror films. One of them that I think is uh, especially awesome is called Razorback, which he made in the oh, yeah. early to mid 80s about the giant pig yep. out in the that outback. It's like Jaws in the Australian desert, you know. So one of the things that he's known for is he liked to do a lot of psychedelic imagery and psychedelic backgrounds, like with the sky or with the sunsets behind the main characters. And there is a lot of that in this particular episode. Okay, yeah, that does make sense. And then I remember seeing about the music videos and stuff. So yeah, this definitely makes sense. And how do you pronounce the last name? Mulcahy. Mulcahy. You got it right. You just did a short A instead of a long A. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Yes, yeah, so that, that does explain a lot with the the way it's set up on certain things. Uh, the screenplay for this episode was by John Harrison. In this episode, Horror in the Night stars Elizabeth McGovern from TV's Downton Abbey, James Wilby from movies like Gosford Park and Howard's End, Ronan Viebert from TV's The Borgias, Edward Tudor Pohl from movies like Call the Conqueror, and Peter Guinness from TV's The Bill. I think everyone here plays it pretty well. I mean, it's mostly... Elizabeth McGovern and uh, I believe James Wilby. James Wilby. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so I'll go ahead here and read the description on the back of the box for Horror in the Night. Just relax and soak in a nice hot bloodbath. A jewel thief checks into a very strange hotel. I mean, that basically sums it up, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, okay, so this episode opens up and you have the Crypt Keeper and it shows him, he's in like a rocket ship, which is kind of different. <laughs> they don't normally, it's within the crypt. Yeah, it, and, it, uh, it's a funny way to start it because normally they have him do, his intro has something to do with the episode. You know, there's sometimes they had him like on a beach or they had him most sometimes. of the time. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes <laughs> they had him in like a weird spot. Steven, season seven, I'm sure they kind of broke away from that pattern. But yeah, the, the fact that there is absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> space exploration in this episode, I thought that was quite kind of a uh, kind of awkward. Well, and it's a pretty in, like involved scene. They're wearing little space suits, him and some other little skeleton, and they're going to blast off into space in this kind of like. You see the inside of the ship. It's kind of neat. I like yeah, it. it was cool. You know, he's having a good time. And the little guy next to him has a really shrunken head. It's kind yeah. of funny. <laughs> and then he brings in the episode. And we are in London. Just bringing in the credits. There's a train. Things going by. And it goes to like this overpass where the train goes over. And it comes up to this car. Let's see. Nick and T. I believe are their names. Yeah, his name's just T. That's that's as far as I heard. <laughs> yeah, because Nick has Nick Marvin. Like he has a whole name, and the other guy's just like I'm T. And T looks to me like a low budget. Oh, what's his name? Can never remember it. Die Hard. Bruce Willis. Nope, bad guy. Oh, um, Alan Rickman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I looks can like see a low that. budget Alan Rickman, just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, especially with the hair kind of like longer and slicked back in that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so they're both sitting in the car and they're watching. Uh, I believe Mr. Star. Mm-hmm coming out of a jewel store, they're thieves. And like their whole thing is they're going to, I believe, rob this place. Yeah, they're essentially going to burgle the shop for the owner of the shop for insurance purposes. And Yeah, so they're all three in on it. Yeah, they're all three in on it. And what I liked about this was it was kind of like Guy Ritchie style. You know, you're dealing with like industrial crime of London, Mm -hmm. but this is like five or six years before Guy Ritchie's first movie came out. So it was cool. It's kind of proto that you have like these really kind of British gangsters kind of just like Tarantino style shooting the shit in the car before they go do the uh, do the job. I like that kind of like even though it was only maybe a minute, maybe two minutes of conversation between the two of them, you, you get this sense of like kind of camaraderie between the two of them. It's like they've done this a million times before for different people. It's just another day on the job. It's really kind of like the John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson conversation in Pulp Fiction like. They're just BSing on their way to work. This is just another day at work. Yeah, this is just another job. Yeah, they're definitely in these couple minutes it establishes that they have a long relationship. So they're up against the building and they're like, okay, well, Mr. Star has left. Uh, Nick turns to T and is like, what if there's, what if we had another plan? What if we decide to just take the jewels for ourselves and run off? You know, I guess, I guess they were going to get some sort of money from the insurance money from Mr. Star, but I guess they'll get a lot more if they just take the jewels and sell them themselves and leave. And then T is like, you don't want to do that because no one steals from Mr. Star right. and gets away with it, <laughs> you know? Aren't you tired of doing someone else's dirty work for crap money? We could do what Mr. Star's doing. Set up a fake wobble, pocket the insurance money and resell the sparkly elsewhere. 30 seconds. I suggest you shut the fuck up and concentrate. Now, I know what you're thinking, T. How can we do it without Mr. Star's jewelry stores and organization? Well, that's why I've got a plan B. We keep the jewels. See what I mean? Mr. Star gets something. We get something. Yeah, your tiny fucking mind. 
Nobody steals from Declan Star and gets away with it. You don't want to mess with this guy. And so they're just kind of thinking about it. But they're like, you know what? Let's just go in and do this break in. And they go to, to break in and they go in and around. It looks like five o'clock. It shows on the clock. And then it cuts to like 510. <laughs> so it's been like 10 minutes. The alarm's going off. And um, they come running out with a briefcase. And there was someone in there, right? I think they shot someone. Yeah, it must have been just like the guy that was closing up shop. Just the one guy. And it's almost done Which like- Which is a, unfortunate. Yeah, it's super unfortunate. <laughs> And I don't even know if that was actually even required. And that's the no. thing about this this episode. And I feel it's the thing about most Tales from the Crypt episodes. You know, they have like a 26, 27 minute runtime. They're, they're very concise. So yeah. they don't have a lot of time to like have exposition to explain more of the story. And that's why I kind of like the way that was shot and framed. Like they kind of just go in, you hear some banter, you hear some gunshots. And then they run out with the briefcase laughing. And it all happens within just like a 45 second time frame. But like you said, it, it shows that it's gone on for about five minutes or so. Yeah, like five, 10 minutes. And I'm assuming that guy was just going to, the guy who got shot is probably a casualty that they had planned, I would think. Because if this guy's as bad as he is, he's probably like, well, we need to make it look real. Yeah. So if this other guy dies, then, you know, it'd be like more like something actually happened, which is horrible, but they're not good people. And that's no. what happens a lot. Tales from the Crypt, bad people get what's coming to them. And that's one reason I think people like it. And so then they're leaving. And that's when T points his gun at Nick under this overpass. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know what? That idea you had about taking the jewels sounds great, but I'm going to do it myself. So he shoots him. Yeah. And there's a lot of gunshots at this scene. It, well, and it's, it's, it's funny because like they're, almost like graciously exchanging gunfire. <laughs> like instead of yeah. like pow, 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 it's like pow. Okay, now it's my turn, pow. Now it's your turn, pow, you know? Yeah, because as uh, as Nick's laying on the ground and, and T takes the jewels and starts to walk away, yeah, he just leans up and shoots him. I think like in the arm. Yeah. So they both didn't, like it doesn't seem like they're going to die right away, but they've both been injured. First, I thought that Nick actually had like a bulletproof vest on or something because he seemed to take that shot very well. And yeah, he gets to, it like in, in the gut almost. Yeah, and then he just turned around quickly and, and shot T. And then I was like, oh, later on you find out that he actually did get shot. But for a second, I'm like, oh, he might have been predicting this double cross. That was like my first intuition. I mean, it would be the smart thing to do. <laughs> so probably always wear that vest. Mm -hmm. uh, especially because, uh, yeah, I could see that because he had like an actual suit on and T had just like leather jacket yeah, and like a shirt. Clothes. So, I mean, it seems a little more businessy like that he would be like prepared so he walks over T, who's on the ground, and picks up the briefcase's jewels and gets in the getaway car. And so he drives around until it's dark, and he comes across this hotel. It's kind of neat. It's by, again, more trains. It's just by more, <laughs> lots of trains. Right. And it's just like an old, like, cylindrical-looking hotel, two or three stories tall. It's not that big. And he goes in, and he meets Lou. And Lou, you know, is checking him in. And at this point... I was trying to remember what this is, what this episode is. And at this point, I was like, well, I was watching it with my boyfriend and he was like, oh, maybe this is like purgatory and he's actually dead. That's exactly how I started translating it too, as if, because yeah. he, he says to Lou, don't I know you? Don't I recognize you? I need a room. 25 pounds a night, sir. I know you from somewhere. Maybe. I've been here a long time. It, it made me think that, oh, this is someone that he's shot or killed in the past. Yeah. And now he is in a place where he has to be living with his demons of the people that he's taken out in the past. 
That was my first intuition. See, I was thinking more of like, this guy's like the keeper of the purgatory and mm-hmm. he like checks you in and then you wait here until you figure out which way you're going. If you're going to heaven, if you're going to hell. And it's a neat, creepy hotel. I mean, it's like, it's not very big, but there's like a big uh, hallway, like circular hallways that have like a red carpet. There's a cool old elevator. Yeah, the production uh, design is really cool. It almost reminded me of something out of like a Tim Burton movie which really kind of added to like the idea of potentially being purgatory. There's just something not real about it. It seems a little heightened reality. Yeah. And that's that's why I thought, well, maybe he is. And, and he, he kind of is when we get to that in a second. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Definitely has to do with death and things. Yes. So he's looking for his room. He's coming up to the room, and it is room number 305. There's some really cool light switches in this room I thought was fun. Almost look like a buzzer, but like instead it's like a switch back and forth, like yeah. an oven, like yeah. an old oven or something. So I thought that was fun because all the, the rooms are kind of old looking. They're old and they look like they would be a little musty smelling. Well, and that's, like a couch. and that's why like your boyfriend's theory and the way I was thinking about it too kind of came into play with just the lighting because up until the point he gets into the hotel, the lighting is very, let's say, realistic. It, it feels like London. It's kind of just gray, kind of hazy. But once he gets in that hotel, the lighting starts getting more extreme. But that is what kind of took me into the idea of, okay, what is real and what is manipulated reality or a false reality at this point? Like, that's what I was trying to stay caught up with. Yeah. And so he gets into this room, Nick does, and he's, you know, paranoid. So he's got his gun. He's walking around. He's looking in the bathroom, in the shower, making sure that's completely clear so he can relax because, you know, don't forget he's been injured. (laughs) Right. Yeah, like collarbone area. It like it's like more superficial hit. more than anything. Yeah. But yeah, there's some really great like shots. Like he's on the phone. He got a phone call. I think he has to still make the connection to fence the jewels. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. And then the phone's like the number you're trying to reach is not here, you know, or whatever. Right. But there's this neat like shot from below where it shows just like his shadow on the ceiling. And so just there's a lot of play with lights. And, you know, he's freaking out and he comes running. He leaves the room because, yeah, he needs to make a phone call, I guess, because the phone's not working. Right. And so he gets down there and <laughs> and Lou's also like the butler or like the bag man for this. Yeah. And that's so why like, I thought uh, it was like supernatural because Lou yeah. keeps showing up in these different costumes. Like he's playing multiple roles at the same time. And that's why I really thought. And again, maybe it was as we go through like this whole second yeah. act of this. There is just a lot of of scene changes that kind of pull a Christopher Nolan on you and like, okay, are we are we real right now or are we imaginary? Are we supernatural? Are we normal? That kind of is the whole middle act in a nutshell is trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's like the lights flickering and like he gets out of the the elevator on the first floor and he goes to t- to like look for Lou and he turns around and Lou's in the elevator now suddenly in like a bellhop outfit and the lights are on him and it goes to shut the doors and he's just like oh wait you know and he's like yeah. nope <laughs> shuts the door and he leaves them so he's like well great where well, i'm gonna find this phone and then that's when uh we run into elizabeth mcgovern who plays laura kindle mm-hmm. and laura's like in the dark and all you can see is like her holding her cigarette and she's laughing at his situation <laughs> what's so funny sorry i'm easily amused these days What? Nothing. Don't take it personally. From where I'm at, everything seems a little funny. Oh, I bet. Well, I tell you what, sweetheart. If I wasn't feeling so under the weather, I'd be happy to amuse you all night. 
You that good? Darling, I could amuse you today. That'd be a neat trick. And another thing about season seven that I like is, like, I don't know if I'd like, but this is definitely the season for, like, sound effects and incidental music. And they yeah. always have, like, weird sounds in this season. But, yeah, so they're kind of talking. You can't see her face, just like her lips. They're having this conversation, like, kind of being a little flirty. Well, the thing that's most troubling to him is that she seems to know him. She's very familiar with, yeah. with who he is. And at least for the first few meetings and incidents with her, he feels like he, he recognizes her, but he really doesn't. And, and here's one of the things that I really liked about this episode and about the way Russell McCahey directed it is, mm-hmm. you know, Elizabeth McGovern, at least at the time and during the 80s, was, was kind of a name. Like, she was in some pretty good movies. She's in one of my favorite Walter Hill movies called Johnny Handsome with Mickey Rourke. And then she was also in a film with Steve Gutenberg called The Bedroom Window, which is underrated psychological thriller. Like, she's really good. But in this, in this particular episode, he has her, like, in the shadows nearly the whole time. She's never fully lit. She's never fully presented. She's always just kind of bathed in darkness and then just pops in and out. And I thought that was a real brilliant way to present this character because, you know, when we get to find out who she is later, it really makes sense that we don't get to see her all the way. You know, we we only get to see yeah. bits and pieces of her bathed in shadow and light. And I, I really, really yeah, liked the, how the that The fact was that done. she's in shadow, yeah. The yeah. fact that she's in shadow, it confuses us in the sense of the way it's confusing him. Exactly. Because he's trying to figure out what's going on. And before he can even really talk to her that long, he passes out because, again, he is bleeding. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was shot in the in the. He's just walking around like nothing's really wrong. Like he's like, I'll get to that later. So he passes out on the stairs. And so then he wakes up in bed back in the hotel room, which was this will become a common occurrence of just being back in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. So he wakes up and there's blood all over. He's in like a white tank top. Someone has undressed him. The lights are still all over the place outside. He's drinking, wondering how he got in here. Yeah. And then out of the bathroom, I believe it's um, Laura comes out and she's still in shadow. Yes. And a towel. (laughs) Yes. She's like, oh, you poor thing. Like she undressed him and she's trying to like, she's almost like she's coming on to him. He's into it in a way he like, there's some flirting earlier. That's like, once I get this settled, sure. I would love to show you a good time. And she's up here, like, pulling the, the bandages off his wound and kissing directly on the wound and <laughs> just all stuff that you're like, okay, he, he doesn't know you. Or does he? Yeah. And so during this, this situation or this whole section here is dreamception. Yes. So she's kissing the wound and then he sees the door fly open and a shadowed man comes in and shoots at him. And then he wakes up again in another dream right. from another dream. And it happens and again, several times. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting because before we get to the ending, I watch a lot of movies. I can usually dissect things pretty well as they happen. And mm-hmm. this one kind of had me at a stump because it, it had me thinking two ways. It had me thinking, okay, so is this a supernatural situation or is this a situation caused by hallucinations from losing too much blood? Yeah, so he's just bleeding to death and doesn't realize it. And so it made me think, okay, so this... This figure that is walking into the door, like kind of bursting through and shooting him, is this a figure from his past or is it a figure from his future? And even though we haven't gotten to the ending yet, I can say right now, I'm still not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I liked it, but I was also like, okay, I get it. Like dream within a dream within a dream (laughs) because it's just Mm -hmm. it's really discombobulating, which I guess is the point. So Mm -hmm. he wakes up out of out of this second dream. 
And he's, again, on the bed. He's in the same outfit. He's bleeding. He goes to look over. There's two glasses for the scotch. And he grabs his gun. And again, uh, Laura comes out in a towel. And she was like, oh, I wanted to get all the blood off me. I hope you don't mind. I couldn't leave you down in the lobby to bleed to death. You know, so um, her and Lou brought him up, she says. Again, she's still in shadow. Yeah. He is still, even though he wakes up in like this traumatic state from either this dream or this premonition, whatever we want to call it. And every time he wakes up, he's still just as like flirty and charming as he was before. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, okay. Can't keep a good guy down, I guess, even though he's shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she's just, I mean, I feel feel like I'd be more worried even more about the jewels. Like I'd I'd be like, I got to figure this out first. I can't have you distracting me and or taking the jewels. So she's like, I wasn't dressing you. I like that. She's getting really flirty again. She gets real breathy at yeah. one point where I was like, dang, girl, tone it down a bit. <laughs> and uh, she goes to lean down again to like kiss the wound. And he's starting to get worried because he's like, what if that guy comes out again? Yeah. He's got his gun now. So it's like, maybe you should calm down and read the room. He's got his gun out. <laughs> and she's like, yes, I love this. I'm so into you. And then she kind of comes a little more in from out of the shadow as she's coming down to like kiss him. And again, he wakes up again out of another dream. Same situation, pops back up, Scotch is there. Now he's kind of really paranoid. He's like, okay, who, what is really going on? Yeah. And it's not, the TV's got like, and it's not even until like the fourth, fourth or fifth time he wakes up that he even checks on the jewels. Yeah. He he like looks at the case, but he never really opens it until like the third or fourth time. It's like, okay, man. (laughs) Yeah. I think he's just getting more of the sense of someone is after him. Yeah. And he needs to figure that out. So like, the TV, of course, is on with like the snowy picture later, especially. But some of this right here is reminding me a lot of, is it 1408 or room 1408? That's or? exactly what I thought. Like the vibe I got, yeah. it's 1402. Is it 1402? Yeah. With Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack. Yeah. Or is it 1409? I think it's 1402. I could have sworn it was 1408. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. I'm going to look real quick. Me too. <laughs> yeah, it's 1408. Okay, 1408. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I yeah, don't know where I got the, 1402 from. But it's like, you know, a guy stuck in a hotel and some things are messing with his head and, you know, all this stuff. So it kind of reminded me a bit of that. Yeah, but, no, I definitely uh, got that vibe as well. And then a little bit of yeah. The Shining, like Lou reminded me yeah. of either the bartender or Delmer Grady from The Shining. Because you just see him mm-hmm. continuing to pop up in this hotel. And so this time Nick pops up and he's immediately going out <laughs> to the front door. Like there's no one here this time. Laura's not here. So he immediately goes up and he walks over to the door and peeps out the little people. And they have a cool shot where it's like through the people. Yeah. And you see Lou in his, like now he's a maid. Yeah. Really. He's in like a maid <laughs> outfit. And he's got all these bloody sheets with him. This is really starting to freak Nick out. So he goes out into the hall. And I mean, Lou is not wearing a skirt. Let me put that. I mean, let me just say he's in a maid outfit, but it's more like the apron and the hat. Yeah. It's like the French maid. <laughs> Yeah. But then again, he goes to try to talk to Lou and Lou just stares straight at him and goes into the elevator. Yeah. No one's giving him any answers. He's still bleeding all over the place. (laughs) These rooms are pretty big, really. Well, again, that's why I was talking about like the heightened reality of this hotel where it seems, you know, like uh, a a distraction, so to speak, where you see how small this building is from the exterior. Like it doesn't look Mm -hmm. very big. But once they're inside, the rooms are huge. The hallways go from wide to narrow in a circular pattern. Like, so there is that kind of weird misconception of size from the exterior to the interior. And that's what really kind of gave away to me this messing with the idea of what's real and what's, what is a distracted reality. Yeah. It's like an Alice in Wonderland type thing. Right, right. Exactly. 
So he goes back into the room and then he gets some blood on his head. And he looks up and the pipes and the top of the roof are, are leaking blood. That was really cool. I love and, that scene. Yeah. Yeah. This is where there's some really fun scenes. Cause then he shoots over, he sees, he looks over to the, um, like the, the heating vent. There's blood on the heating vent and it's sizzling. And the bathtub is fun. bubbling over with blood. It's fantastic. Yeah. I love that that whole scene thing. was really cool. Yeah. I love that whole, all that imagery from that scene was fantastic. That was probably my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, yeah, because it's like then the walls start bleeding and the tub is bubbling over, like you said, into the bathtub mm-hmm. or into the bathroom too. And it's all, it's just like real crimson and gross and creepy. And he's just standing there like, and it's just like pouring from the walls. Like, oh, then it shoots back and it shows him and he's covered in blood, just blood everywhere. They really went all out on the effects on this one. Yeah, especially on the fake blood. And again, that that kind of reminded me of The Shining with the, like the, the river mm-hmm. of blood flowing from the elevator like that still had that kind of shining feel to it, except this time it was in the pipes and the radiator and the ceiling and the bathtub. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, so he's like holding his face like, oh, make it stop, you know, and then he looks up and everything's fine. He's back to how he was. And at the door in the shadows again is Laura. And she's like, you okay? She's like, okay. And now she's really thirsty. She really wants a piece of Nick. Oh, yeah, she does. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, oh, honey, you must have just been hallucinating. Let's just get drunk and fool around. And now you can see her a lot clearer. All this, whatever this is, is building up. Yeah. And so then she starts coming on to him and he's like, you know, at first he's like, I don't know. I mean, I am like in a pain. (laughs) (laughs) I am shot. And bleeding. (laughs) And she's like, I need to get out of here. So why don't we get out of here together? Yeah. You and I could really help each other. What makes you think I need help? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's the hole in your shoulder. The cops crawling all over your car before they towed it away. Or maybe it's the way you never take your eyes off that briefcase. What do you have in mind? You need to get out of here. I need to get out of here. How about we get out of here together? And how are we going to do that? We go downstairs. We get in my Mercedes. And we drive. You don't even know me. What if I'm a really bad man? Oh, I'm sure you are. When you say thirsty, it is like... Out in the desert, Lawrence of Arabia thirsty. Yeah. She climbs on top of this she guy. She is parched. She is parched. No, she climbs on top of this guy, and you're like, okay, so they're going to have, you know, just your typical HBO 25-minute movie sex scene. But no, she gets she, aggressive on this guy and even says, whoa, slow she down. She rips like, okay, at first I thought she ripped her own underwear off, but no, she, well, I guess maybe she still kind of did. Well, those, are, those were tidy whities She ripped his off for sure. <laughs> well he had short i thought his were boxers well whatever they were she ripped it off like she didn't even like slide I, them it was like uh yeah so yeah he lays down <laughs> she takes his shirt off and then i think she had like stockings or like those clips and so i think what she did is she clipped that and then she like ripped her underwear off yeah she she she's wasn't wasting any she's time got, she can't wait well and that's that's and where she, this thing gets super disturbing <laughs> so jacob's ladder in that film and in the film possession there is a a demon mm. sex scene and that's what, that's what this felt like. <laughs> it, it felt like the, the Tales from the Crypt version of that because as she is just like getting more and more aggressive with this guy, all of a sudden she starts taking on this demonic non-human form. So now we've gone from like this kind of paranoid 
potentially paranormal situation into full on body horror just about. Yeah. And she's still got like her slip on, but she is just like, she's on top of him. And I mean, she is slamming down onto him. Yeah. Just, just saying like to the point we're like, wow, this took a turn. And so he's like hanging on for dear life and still bleeding. I mean, his wound is <laughs> still bleeding. She gets these big braggony yeah, gargoyle gremlin wings. from gremlins tomb. Yeah. Uh, wings. That come out of her. It was really cool special effects. I, I really yeah. enjoy that whole thing. And then it takes this weird turn where everything gets like a gooey yellow everywhere. So, There's like tentacles yeah. everywhere. It, it and turns like into Cronenberg at that point where yeah. that's where the body horror is. There's unexplained like pus and fluid that he's confused by. It, like I said, it, it takes you from that like paranoid and paranormal idea to like this straight body and fluid horror that was absolutely terrifying and disgusting. And that's why I really, I dug this episode because it packed so much from so many different genres into like 26 minutes. I was so impressed. It's also, it's like how much worse could, like for him, he was like, how much worse could this get? The walls were already bleeding. Right. <laughs> and then it stopped. And then, and then this happened. And it's like, just, oh, gooey yellow. And then he wakes back up and everything's fine again. He like, again, it's like the fifth time yeah. that he's woken up back in the shorts. This time uh, the TV's actually working talking about missiles being launched. He opens up the, the briefcase. His jewels are still there. He's like, cool. He actually checks the jewels. He goes back out in the hallway. Now he's got the gun. Yeah. So he's just like not even messing around. And Lou is again moving bloody sheets. And so he's trying to be like, hey, man, what is going on? And Lou just keeps ignoring him. Yeah. So now he goes into room 301, which is where Lou came out of with the sheets. And so this is kind of fun. So he goes into room 301 and it's the room. It's one of his hallucinations or whatever it was. Yeah. So he walks in and everything's covered in blood, just like it was before he woke up from that dream. So it's like, is he passing out or something? And then they just reset him in a new room or. Well, well like, remember there's that one happening? hallucination that he was running through the hallway and every single room was 305. Like he yeah. kept, he'd run from one room to the next room to the next room. So there is a significance to room 305 and they talk a little bit about it more at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so he's in this room, but this one's 301. So yeah, yes. everything's just really messing with him. So he walks in this room and it's the bloody room that he was in. And so he's like, okay, I got to go. So he backs out of that and now it's 305. So as soon as she goes to shut that door of 301, he looks back and now it's 305. Yeah. He notices all the doors are 305. So it's just like different plays on what he's been hallucinating. So now he's running, he's checking all the doors. And now we hit the ending. So he finds the room, he goes into a room and... Laura is up in like silhouette again against the window. And he's like, what do you want from me? And she's like, you don't remember me, do you? <laughs> the elevator is opening up and he peeks out in the hall and there's some men coming down the hall. So she's basically like, you killed me five years ago. You're Laura Kendall. And she's like, yeah, it's nice to see you, Nick. And then they do like a play again of that guy coming through and it's supposed to be him. Right. Um, in shadow coming through. And it does like a reenactment of him shooting her in front of the window which is what he did about five years ago. It was as a hit, right? Yeah, so the ending, again, like it feels like a real kind of like Christopher Nolan kind of thing where who really comes into the room this time is T, and T shoots yes. him down. Yeah, they have it jump from, from looking like Nick shooting Laura to immediately then it shoots over to it's T, and T is now shooting Nick, so they have found him. What have I ever done to you? It's funny, that's exactly what I said to you five years ago. <laughs> Five years. 
Laura Kendall. It's nice to see you, Nick. Shoulders healing. Looks like they're all here, Mr. Starr. You know something? This is the same place that me and Nick did that job. And that's where, like, the brilliance of this episode comes into play because all this time while Nick's staying in this room, the room seems to be current with whatever time frame he's in. You know, the room is clean or as clean as it can be for some kind of London underground hotel. It -hmm. doesn't seem like decrepit or anything. When he walks into the hotel at the beginning of the episode after he escapes with the jewels, it's at dusk. And we get this really cool, like, silhouette of the hotel and the train passing with that traditional Russell Mulcahy, like, orange sky behind it. So there definitely is a hint of heightened reality in that scene. Because now when you see Nick being shot by T, all of a sudden the room that he's in has been destroyed and decayed. It's got graffiti on the walls. There's mattresses mm-hmm. on the floor. It looks like a flop house or like a crack house. So, And it's the next morning. It's so the like next he's made morning. it through the night. So then because then Mr. Star comes in as well with him and they're standing there and there's just yeah graffiti everywhere there's just like a single like just old mattress yeah <laughs> on the ground he's just been hiding out here so so to him it looked like this luxurious well, not luxurious but decent hotel yeah um and so they killed him t and mr star found him you know about the jewels they shot him the jewels are still there guess t is fine i mean he still got shot the day before yeah so yeah i i I don't know maybe you need to get shot more than once in london to get seriously injured because they both seem to do a lot having been shot once but the the fascinating thing to me about this is that like you know mr star is like oh like how did you know he was going to be here and he's like well it just kind of made sense that he would hide out here because this is where he's hidden out before oddly enough this is a room where we committed this hit five years earlier And that's where the whole thing kind of like is ambiguous, I want to say, whether or not this was Mm -hmm. an actual paranormal incident or if it was all psychological with a Nick. Like, is it guilt that drove him to go back and hide out in this hotel? Or was it Laura trying to get revenge? That's the thing. Like, I, I, I never really came to a suitable conclusion on my own of whether or not this whole incident was paranormal or psychological. It's probably more hallucinations from the blood mixed in with the guilt. Yeah. But it's also fun to think about the fact that Laura, you know, was getting, because I mean, she, she had a hit put on her because she was like cheating on her husband with a driver or something yes. like that. It wasn't even like she was like a terrible, I mean, yeah, no. that's not good, but like these guys are a lot worse. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a, it's a group of killers and thieves and really she just had some infidelity. <laughs> yeah. I like this ending, but no, I don't know. Cause Mr. Star and T don't really get anything. They're bad too. 
And did Mr. T or not Mr. What if I say Mr. T? <laughs> did T go back to Star and be like, "Oh, hey, he stole the jewels. We need to go get him." Not mentioning the fact that he's the one who brought who tried to pull one over on Nick in the first place. Oh, for sure, because that's his main play. Because that's why he shoots him yeah. with no questions asked. If they yeah, just, exactly. Yeah, if they just walked in there and he'd be like, "Oh, well, you try to steal from him too," and he's like, "Nope, not even gonna let that guy talk." He just comes in guns blazing. So yeah, so then it's, you know, they're walking out of the hotel with the jewels and they just left them there. Yeah, fade uh, to black. But what is cool is that when they're walking out of the hotel, you see that the whole hotel, even from the outside, the exterior has fallen into disrepair and is decrepit now too. It wasn't just yes. that room. So like a lot's happened in the last five years, but something has kept Nick attached to it. They leave it ambiguous, but there is a quick line at the end that does point more to a paranormal because, um, I don't know, one of them say, one of the guys say that there was a call from a woman saying she knew that they were looking for Nick. And that's how they found and, him. Yeah. Yeah. But could it have been Nick speaking in Laura's voice? Could it have been like a Norman Bates kind of thing? I mean, he did try to <laughs> wanted to make a phone call. So, I mean. Exactly. He kept trying to make a maybe, phone call. Yeah. That's my point. Like, was that what it is? Like, was it the extreme guilt? I love ambiguous endings. Yeah, let me think about it. Let me just, you know, formulate it and then come up with an opinion of my own and let me debate it with other people or have conversations on podcasts like yours about yeah. what this actually means. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, this one does make you think. And again, it's got some great effects. So all in all, I mean, it's it's probably one of the better ones of the of season seven. That's the end. It cuts back to the Crypt Keeper. He's still going to space. <laughs> he's making all the fun puns and, and having a good time and they show him like blasting off the little skeleton dude next to him his like head taking flies off the helmets off. <laughs> his head flies off and like a like a rocket crypt keeper you're so punny and the best crypt keeper pun is poor nick perhaps if he had had reservations he wouldn't have checked in Maybe next time he bumps into the girl of his screams, he'll expect her. <laughs> Begin launch sequence. Gotta go, creeps. Wow! What a massacre! <laughs> There is no IMDb trivia for this episode. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, yeah, that there would be something. Um, but yeah, so that's the end of season seven, episode five, Horror in the Night. The next episode is season seven, episode six, Cold War. Antonio, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you for, A, choosing me to join you on this, and B, recommending this episode. It was a lot of fun. It had a very different vibe than most Crypt episodes I've seen. Well, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I thought this would be a fun one to talk to or talk with about, you know, with someone and just like thought I had an interesting setup. I mean, they do pack a lot into like 24 minutes for this one. So, yeah, they really do. Uh, they really do. Yeah, because some of them you can tell when they're like trying to pad it, you know, like they'll have a really long opening credits or something. But yeah, so this one wasn't really like that. But is there anything you would like to promote while you're on here? Hey, while you're listening to podcasts, jump over to the Cultworthy podcast or the Cultworthy classic. Listen to me and some fantastic guests like Melissa talk about obscure films from the past and the present, trying to make them cult worthy for future generations who may have forgotten where all of these amazing films came from. 
and all the influences they've had on things that we see in cinema today. And yeah, check out my website, thecultworthy.com, where I've got all of my reviews of these films written down in review and blog form. And you can find the episodes there as well. So yeah, thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for downloading and listening to this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Gek Podcast, that's at G-E-K Podcast, or on Facebook for the Good Evening Kitties Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at goodeveningpod at gmail.com. Please go on to Good Pods, I think it is, or Podcast Republic, or iTunes, Apple Podcasts, all that, and leave a five-star review, and I will read it on the podcast. You can also check out Gus the Podcat at a sweet cat named Gus on Instagram. Uh, yeah, thank you all again, and it's been fun. Antonio, say bye. Hey, goodbye, everybody. Bye.